Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. Hear now the very words of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You can look around and tell that the world knows that something is broken and is looking for a way to fix it. You'll find a variety of answers proposed for how to find a solution to what's broken. To find a purpose and to find a direction in life. And to know whether or not one can be known and loved. You'll find some great TED Talks with really encouraging messages about self-empowerment and being true to yourself, listening to your heart and improving yourself. Everyone is good. Everyone is right. These are all lies of Satan and of the world and of our own hearts. The message we get from the world to solve all the problems is look within or maybe look around. But the real solution is to look up. Look up to Jesus. Because there is one word that is truth. It is a self-denying gospel. A gospel that says, forsake yourself. Don't listen to your desperately sick heart. No one does good, not even one. No one seeks for God. But there is one way, one truth, and one life. There's a driving question behind our message today, and it's a question that is so often ignored because the world might say that there is generally a problem, but they will not call it sin. But we all stand condemned under the law as sinful and broken. So what are you going to say when you stand before God? And He asks you, Why should I let you into my heaven? That's a question famously posed by the evangelism explosion curriculum. What would you say to God if you stand in judgment on that last day and your sins are exposed and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to do about the reality of your sin? The world says, I'm I'm quoting a red-headed Pastor Pyland who serves in Hudson, Ohio. 
The world says, do, do, do. Our gospel says, done, done, done. We come to the point of Mark that he has been building to since the very first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is how this book opens. And here we come to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to look first at the judgment that was poured out on Jesus on this cross. And then we will turn ourselves, turn our attention to the death and the victory that was won on that cross. Let's look first to the judgment. Starts in verse 36. It says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The setting here is darkness, and Mark gives us these hour markings. Last week, we saw in verse 25 that on the third hour, he was crucified. That was at 9 a.m. He was put on the cross. Now here we come to the sixth hour. It's noon until the ninth hour. And from that noon to 3 p.m., it was midday when the sun is shining its brightest, yet there was darkness over the whole land. Now, how God did this, no one knows. Could it have been a wind, an obscuring wind? Could it have been dark clouds? It couldn't have been a solar eclipse because this correlated with the time of the Passover, which is dependent on the full moon. It doesn't matter how it happened. It was supernatural. And every gospel writer wants us to know that God darkened the earth in this moment as Christ died as a sign of cosmic judgment against a nation. Because in the Old Testament, we see it regularly. This darkness is correlated with judgment upon a wicked nation. In the Old Testament prophets, you'll find it many, many places, but I'll just read two for us. Joel 2 says, The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? And then Amos 8 says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Here's a sign of God's judgment against the nations for their sin. And it is a promise that in the great day of the Lord, when wrath is poured out against sin, there's darkness. So here as Jesus hangs on the cross from noon until 3 p.m., it is dark. As a sign that God is judging the wickedness of his nation, Israel. Here, the judgment of the true Israel is poured out upon the representative Jesus on that cross. You know, Jesus also predicted this similar cosmic disturbance in Mark chapter 13. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This in reference to the judgment that would come on the temple. And we see also in our passage today, judgment on the temple. What's happening then upon the cross is that God, once again, is pouring out judgment against all those who have gathered into Christ. And in the Old Testament, he poured out judgment regularly upon the nations around Israel for their sin and upon Israel for her sins. And this is the final payment, the ultimate day of judgment for the sins of those who are truly in Christ on the cross this day. And so darkness is appropriate. Now, there is another day of judgment coming at the end of days. 
And it's a day of judgment when there will be wrath poured out against another nation. Against all those who are, who are in the nation that is not of Christ. And on that day there will be darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because the judgment will not be poured out upon a representative on that day, but upon each and every sinner who has not been found in Christ. They will be sentenced to the eternal presence of God's wrath. But if you believe in Jesus, your day of judgment is done. It is already complete because our God cannot punish your sins twice. That would be unjust and he is just. That last day will be a day of vindication and of welcome into the eternal blessed presence of our God. All that we see in this word, darkness. We continue, verse 34. Mark tells us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. This is written with a tone of scoffing on behalf of the bystanders. They don't seem sincerely interested in whether Elijah is going to come and take Jesus down. But why would they reference this Elijah? Well, first of all, the words that Jesus uttered from the cross as a man in great distress can easily have been heard as the name Elijah. Because the name Elijah has in it, my God. It means Yahweh is my God. So they could have heard him when, when Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. They, it sounds like the name Elijah. But also, Elijah was understood as a helper who was going to come in times of need in Jewish culture. And so people would cry out to Elijah for help. And so they thought maybe Jesus is crying out to Elijah so that Elijah might come and help him. It was also believed based on Old Testament passages like Malachi 3, that John the Baptist was going to return before the day of God's judgment. And so they scoff at Jesus saying, oh look, he's calling Elijah. Let us prolong his suffering. And they prolonged his suffering with the vinegar. This was a common drink. It was a cheaper mixture than, than just wine. It was mixed with vinegar and it was meant to curb thirst and to extend the life of someone dying. And it was probably present for the centurions as a common drink for them as they were standing for hours guarding those who were upon the crosses. And so these guards continue to turn Jesus into a spectacle and they want him to hang there to live a little longer, prolong his misery just in case Elijah might possibly come to help him as they said it with scoffing. But what is really happening here is the fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 91, excuse me, 69 verse 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The sufferer, his suffering was completed in what Christ suffered on that cross. As he was fulfilling these Old Testament anticipations of the servant sufferer. And so his mocking endured to the very end. And for a fuller 
explanation of that mocking. Listen to last week's sermon if you missed it. The suffering that he endured for you and for me. Jesus cried out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This comes directly from Psalm 22, from the first verse. This is a quote. And it's important for us to identify what Jesus is not saying before we understand what Jesus is saying by quoting, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is contrary to uh, popular understanding and popular lyrics. Jesus was not saying that the Father was absent, that the Father was gone, that it was just the second person of the Trinity alone. That would require a schism within the Godhead, a brokenness between Father, Son, and Spirit that is not consistent with the nature of our God. And it would also mean that the wrath that was poured out upon Jesus for sin was done so by someone other than the Father. So we cannot say that in this forsakenness that Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, that he is saying that God is gone, the Father is gone. What he is saying, we find actually in the parallel phrase in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 verses 1 and 2 are are parallel, and as Hebrew poetry goes, those two verses interpret one another. And verse 22 says, why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Jesus had cried out in his humanity, he does not want this cup if it is possible for this cup to pass. Let it pass. But he was willing to submit himself to the will of the Father. And here he endured pain and suffering that no one could comprehend. And so he cries out in that, Why are you so far from saving me? Have you forsaken me here on this cross? But we remember that Jesus remained faithful to the covenant of redemption that he had made with the Trinity from eternity past. And that covenant of redemption says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It is exactly in this suffering that the will of the Lord was prospering. This was the plan. But every fiber of Jesus' human being feels the pain of this substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus was saying, Oh God, where's your favor? Where's your blessing? I feel no comfort in this moment. The comfort from the Father and from the Spirit was so obscured by the pain of the weight of the sin of the elect across the whole world, across all time, that it seemed like the Father had also turned against him and that there was none to help. But the richness of Psalm 22 also clarifies for us that God did not abandon him. Verse 24, the latter half of the psalm, which provides so much hope, clarifies that even in the deepest of sufferings, God the Father sustained Jesus when it says, He has not hidden His face from Him, but He has heard when He cried to Him. The Father heard. After all, Jesus was calling to Him, My God, 
my God, which includes and indicates his trust in the Father's relationship to him in this eternal Trinitarian unity. And Luke tells us that right at the end, it was into the Father's hands that Jesus committed his spirit, the Father who was there with him. And then John 19 tells us that Jesus says, it is finished. A cry of victory. And the payment of sin was accomplished there upon the cross. It is done, done, done. And you know, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they always cooperate. They always work together. All three on the same page. And we cannot think that Jesus and the Spirit finished salvation without the Father. God can pour out His wrath with one hand and uphold His Son with the other. And in that moment, we see the perfect concert of Trinitarian work. The Father who had sent His Son poured out His wrath on Him in judgment of the sin of the world. And the Son made Himself nothing and gave Himself up for the sacrifice, willingly taking the cup and the Spirit sustaining Him. The self-giving of the Trinity in this moment is indescribable as God who is love has willingly demonstrated that love by pouring out His wrath against His own beloved Son on the cross. So, in the case that the Father was not absent, does that make Jesus' sacrifice insufficient? Some would say that in order for Christ to bear the full weight of sin, that He must be absent from the Father because those who suffer in hell will be absent from the Father. And I must say that too is a misunderstanding. What Jesus bore with the weight of every sin of every one of the elect on his body on the tree is unfathomable. He, as the eternal son of God, was able to endure in himself an eternal punishment for sin that is due to finite people for their sins against an eternal God. And on that cross, he bore the equivalent punishment as hell, as eternal damnation. And it was exactly God's wrathful presence that poured out that payment for sin upon his body on the tree. Because hell is actually not the absence of God's presence. Hell is the eternal wrath of God that is poured out justly against sinners. And Jesus bore that hell on the cross. One commentator puts it this way, and I think it's a really helpful way to summarize this cry of Christ on the cross. It says, The depths of the saying are too deep to be plumbed, but the least inadequate interpretations are those which find in it a sense of desolation in which Jesus felt the horror of sin so deeply that for a time the closeness of his communion with the Father was obscured. So he cried cried out in his full humanity, Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that weight of sin was so heavy. And what is happening in this moment is that Jesus became sin for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus became the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And he became the ransom for many, as Mark said just a few chapters earlier in chapter 10. Jesus was quoted as saying, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. Giving his life as a ransom for many. Taking the curse. Becoming sin. 
That's the judgment that Jesus received. And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The depths of what is going on, we cannot in our humanity comprehend. Let's look at the death of Christ and the victory. Jesus uttered a loud cry, verse 37, and breathed his last. What did he cry out? Mark doesn't tell us. Was it victory? Well, it was not likely defeat. Because Luke says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And John says it is finished. And either one of these phrases could produce the type of response that the Roman centurion gave in verse 39. We'll get to that Roman centurion's response here in just a moment. After this loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And to those who were looking on, of course, it looks and sounds like defeat. And it was exactly as Jesus had predicted in Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10. But in each instance, Christ had reminded them there's this hope that on the third day he will rise. And he did. But it's important for us to note that he breathed his last. He historically died in time and space. His heart stopped beating and his lungs stopped breathing. And there were two in-person examinations that bore witness to this, because some will try to explain it away and say that Jesus swooned and therefore did not resurrect, but simply came to. But the centurion who stood near him and declared him to be the son of God, he saw him die, and he has seen many men die. And then there was Joseph of Arimathea who laid him in a tomb. And we will see that story next week. But there is no record, not even one, of somebody surviving a Roman crucifixion. So we cannot say that this is the one exception when there is such witness that Jesus had died. Because the Romans had figured out death down to a science. And this is also the truth of his death that is preserved in the historic creeds of the church, such as the Apostles' Creed, which says he was crucified, dead, and buried. And it's really important for us to see that it's not just some man dying on the cross. Our confessions put it this way. Christ humbled himself in his death. And that having been betrayed by Judas, having been forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and tormented by his persecutors, having also conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness, he felt and borne the weight of God's wrath, and he laid down his life, an offering for sin, enduring the painful, shameful, and cursed death of the cross. Here is the offering for sin. And this is the greatest love, John tells us. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Before we get to the end here, just a short application. This sacrifice of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God on that cursed tree, bearing the judgment of wrath against sin, is the only way you could ever pay for your sins. There is no other option. There is no other religion. There is no other self-help method. There is no climbing the ladder. There is no self-accomplishment, no amount of good works. There's no forgetting about sin, pretending it doesn't exist. And there's not a new standard. 
God's law alone, and under it all have sinned, and no one does good, not even one. But God has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. So back to that evangelism explosion question. If you were to stand before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? You must answer that. You you can try to claim the merits of Christ on your behalf on that day, and you must because your merits won't be enough. Or you can stand before the throne and wait for Jesus to speak up because he will. Or you can hide behind him. As Jesus says, this one is mine covered in my blood. But you will not stand on that day on your own. You must be in Jesus. It's dangerous to quote song lyrics, much less country song lyrics. But there's a song that goes like this. It's called Sinners Like Me. On the day I die, I know where I'm going to go. Me and Jesus got that part worked out. I'll wait at the gates till, I, till his face I see. There's no entry on that day without Christ. The only way to work out that part with your sin is with Jesus. For him to take it. For you to place all of your offenses against your God on him. To trust him. Because as Jesus died, this is not a tragic ending. But instead, this is a moment of great fulfillment and revelation and hope and salvation for sinners like us. Because we see that curtain torn in the professed faith of a Gentile. And it's to those things that we turn our attention now as we see the victory that Christ accomplished. The first victory is access. It says in verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom action is indicative that this is God involved. This is a supernatural work of God intervening, coming and tearing that curtain. Two scholars, uh, Walter Wessel and Mark Strauss, they, they tell us there are three purposes for the tearing of this curtain. And I think they're helpful for us. First of all, God's judgment against the temple and against the temple's corrupt leadership. This was a continuing theme throughout the book of Mark, and it makes sense that here Mark would drive that point home. Here the temple is obsolete. There is a new temple, and it's the body of Jesus. Another reason that the, the, this curtain was torn is to show the cessation of the temple sacrifices. The blood of bulls and goats does nothing. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices, especially when you think back to the day of atonement in Leviticus 16, because there the high priest could go once a year into the presence of God to make atonement for sins with a blood sacrifice. But Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. And then in Hebrews 10, says it with such clarity, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. The temple sacrifices are done. The curtain has been torn. And the third reason, the third richness that we find in the tearing of the curtain is this. There's new access into God's presence available through Jesus' death. There's new access into God's presence 
Hebrews 10 verse 20 puts it so clearly. It says, we have a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. We come to God now not through the establishment of the temple and through the curtain and blood sacrifices, but through the blood sacrifice, through the body of Jesus Christ. In Exodus 26, you can find details of how this curtain was built to separate the ark, that is God's presence, from the people. But there are actually two curtains in the temple. There was the one right by the Holy of Holies, and then there was the curtain that separated the court of the Jews from the court of the women. In the outer, if, if the outer curtain was meant, then as that curtain was torn, it's actually recalling Jesus' baptism because that curtain had depicted on it the seas and the earth and the skies. So then the whole earth was torn in that moment, just like the sky was torn as Jesus was baptized and the voice of the Father spoke, this is my beloved Son. And now the access is open to women and to Gentiles, to the nations, in the sacrifice of Jesus. If this were the curtain intended... It does face a problem, however, because nobody, excuse me, this curtain does not have that problem. In this curtain, everybody would have seen that this curtain is torn. It's the outer curtain. And the people who used to only stand in the court of the women, those who could not approach, are now welcomed into the place of worship for the people of God. But if the curtain was that inside curtain, veiling the Holy of Holies, then this would have had to have been relayed by one of the priests to the people. That the curtain has torn. Now the presence of God has flooded out to those who are a part of His covenant people. Because if the curtain that was torn was the one veiling the Holy of Holies, then the significance is that of access to the very presence of God in the most holy place. And it is into that place that the, uh, the priests would go on the Day of Atonement to forgive sins. But if someone were to go into God's presence unworthily, whether a Gentile or even a Jew who went unworthily, without the blood sacrifice, they would be struck dead. Because sinners like us do not have a proper place in God's holy presence on our own. But now we do. Because that access has been granted, that curtain has been torn because of what Christ did for his people. Which specific curtain was torn is unknown. It's uncertain. But we do know from elsewhere in Scripture that both effects were accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice. It is true that as Jesus died, the outer veil was torn and that the nations are welcomed in to the people of God. And it is true that if it were the inner curtain, that if it were torn, that the presence of God is now made available to all those who are in Christ. And in both cases, it does hearken back to Jesus' baptism because nowhere else does Mark use that word torn. In Jesus' baptism, the heavens were torn and the identity of Christ was made clear. And here in this passage, the veil is torn. And who makes the identity of Christ clear? A Gentile, a killer, a Roman centurion. And he entered by that new and living way that Christ opened for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. So let's look then at that second victory. This victory of inclusion of the nations. 
and of this declaration in verse 39. Verse 39 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. What stark contrast this is to verse 32. The religious leaders, they they were demanding Jesus to come down so that they might see and believe. They wanted to see a sign. Yet this man saw the suffering, dying son of God on the cross and said, that is the man in whom I believe. That is the suffering servant, that person of Christ, the son of God given as a ransom for many. And it is precisely this suffering one in whom we are called to believe. And this is the first time in the entire book of Mark that in faith someone declares Jesus to be the Son of God. And by a Gentile, by a Roman executioner, what was it about the way that Jesus died? Because it says it was, the, the centurion saw the way in which he breathed his last and he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Mark doesn't give us that detail. What was it? about the way Jesus died? What is it about the way Jesus died that made you see and believe? Because both the centurion's response and yours are dependent upon the supernatural working in your heart to see Jesus for who he is on that cross. The person of Jesus, weakness to the world, but the power of God. In the centurion's declaration where he says, this man was the son of God, the nations begin to gather into Christ. You may remember with the Psalm 22 connection from last week, Psalm 22 promises that the nations are going to be brought in. And right here, it starts to happen. A Gentile comes in. And also throughout the book of Mark, we see lots of others. And this will be what we get into next week. But lots of others who are considered last According to the worldly view of power, those who are considered last find life in Jesus. They are made first. And the first, last. Remember the Syrophoenician woman. Remember the unclean woman. You remember Simon of Cyrene and others. Next week we'll see the women at the cross and the women at the tomb. And we'll see Joseph of Arimathea who represents the remnant of the Jews who find life in Christ. So as Mark is writing all this, he's urging his readers, he's urging you and he's urging me to ask the question, as Jesus asked Peter earlier, who do you say that Jesus is? Will you grab hold of the Christ, the Son of God, as the sufferer that he is who laid his life down as a ransom for many? Do you believe that this moment in history was the exact moment that forgives sins and that there is nowhere else to find pardon from your sin? Look to the one who bore the sins of his people in his body on the tree. Will you in faith see the sacrifices made for you? Or will you try to bear the weight of judgment on your own shoulders on that last day? There is no more curtain keeping you from God's gracious presence. God has done away with the curtain and the gift of eternal life is poured abundantly upon all who look to Jesus and believe. I urge you, come lay your burdens at the cross of Jesus and find his righteousness given to you, your sin given to him, and find eternal life in God's presence granted to you, and it will never be taken away. Before we close, 
the author of Hebrews did a full application of this passage for us. And I think it's helpful for us to turn very briefly to what it means that Jesus was this sacrifice. Because he says in Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's recapping this Mark passage, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh, and, verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God, he then gives us specific commands. What, is it, what do we do now that we're in Jesus? First of all, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near, brothers and sisters. We get to draw near to God's presence in this place right now because of what Jesus did on that cross. We get to draw near to the throne of grace in prayer because of Jesus' blood-bought privilege. And we get to come washed clean. We're not vile and guilty and filthy from our sin anymore. That has been paid for. And your conscience even has been cleaned. In Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. God promised. He is faithful. He's the ground of our faith. You contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You've heard that quote. You can stand firm without wavering this confession of hope. The truth of Jesus Christ. Confess it, say it, remember it, talk about it, memorize it. After 50 years at the old Princeton Seminary, Charles Hodge famously said this. He was proud of the fact that, quote, a new idea never originated in this seminary. Isn't that a wonderful truth? A timeless truth. And it is this truth. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that was the foundation of Unfortunately, that can no longer be said of, old, of Princeton Seminary. But would it be said of us in this church and in our hearts as well that we hold fast to one confession and we hold fast to it? Hebrews continues in verse 24, 10 verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So yes, by biblical authority, the proper response to Jesus is the Sunday school answer. Go to church. Come into his presence with one another and encourage one another. And then this gets really personal in Hebrews 10 verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you have looked to Christ in faith, you no longer fear that judgment. But if you continue to serve sin, I'm not saying if you continue to struggle against sin by the power of the Spirit, but if you continue to serve sin and you are not confronting it, then you have not taken hold of the sacrifice of Jesus. And you do not have confidence that your sins have been paid for. And the fact that Jesus has done all this for us should never drive us to selfish, lawless living, but to, it should empower us to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And let's try to see the fruit of the Spirit grow. Let's long to be united to the, the Spirit by God's Word. 
not just by behavioral correction, but by taking root in the Spirit, by living, living by heavenly truth and by putting to death sin, living in that victory that Christ accomplished on that cross. And as Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Isaac Watts put it this way, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I have done? He suffered on the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun and darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Let us respond by giving ourselves away to the Savior who has given it all for us. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, you so loved the world that you gave your Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is to this suffering, dying Savior who paid for our sins that we look in faith. Keep us there. Help us to stay locked in and to meditate on a truth that never fades. Keep us from falling into temptation when we want to look around to what the world offers as a solution and let us keep our eyes set on Jesus alone, in whom we stand now and forever. It's in his precious name, by the Spirit we pray, amen.